Welcome. Glad you could join me. I'm your host, Ali A. Alomi. Um, as usual, before we actually get started into the meat of the matter, I just wanted to remind you that you can follow along the podcast and submit questions vis-a-vis social media. So check me out on Instagram and Twitter at A-A-O-L-O-M-I and use the hashtag HeadOnHistory. Questions that you submit will be answered on the podcast. Now that we've got social media out of the way, let's get started. When last we chat, Muhammad had returned to Mecca and united most of Arabia under the banner of his new community. Then that's really the key word here, community. While Islam as a religion was still developing, much of its basic tenets were already fully adopted. And in many ways, that makes kind of Islam really unique. For example, the five pillars of Islam that most people know about, the Shahada or the Declaration of Faith, the five pillars uh, or the five daily prayers, the month-long fast, the almsgiving, and the pilgrimage were all part of the practices of those early Muslims. That said, much of the faith would still take years to develop. Uh, you know, for example, Sharia wouldn't come to be for another several hundred years. The core of the religion that was in place at the time of Muhammad brought his vision to be by 632 CE. The Quran, which was revealed orally piecemeal over 20 years, was also completed, memorized, written down, and collated by the time of Muhammad's death. Yet, despite this reality, the identity of Muslim remained really fluid. What we think of Muslim today was quite different from what it was in the 7th century at the time of Muhammad's death. In fact, the Quran itself refers to the followers of Muhammad as the Mu'mineen, or the believers, regularly hailing them as, Oh, you who believe! As historians, this identification in the Quran, along with the corroborating evidence, uh, points to what Fred Donner calls the community of believers, which is really just a fancy way of saying that not everyone in Muhammad's group was Muslim in the way that we think of it today. Muhammad's goal was really to reform the social structure of Arabia, to break away from the so-called age of ignorance. He did this by forging an alliance, a coalition that cut across tribal and religious divisions to include Jews, Christians, and Hanifs. All were united to create a just, God-fearing society dedicated to feeding the hungry and the poor, to protecting the orphan and the widow, and united under the worship of a singular deity. And just like in Star Wars, the rebels basically won. Though I don't know who Han Solo is in this particular scenario. Okay, that was a shameless nerd moment. Enough of that. One thing to remember is that Muhammad's message of monotheism is deeply intertwined in his social and economic message. Polytheism was seen as a source of strife, but also one of deep exploitation. Tribes who were custodians of shrines like the Quraysh relied on polytheism to make money. They were able to make the big bucks because of their guardianship. They were able to exploit the other tribes, you know, force them to pay good money in order to bring their gods to the Kaaba. For Muhammad, monotheism was about a singular community joined in social welfare under one god. Christians, Jews, and Hanifs who wished to break away from the old order that we talked about in the Red Sea episode were key to Muhammad's success. The Quran itself built its authority on the legitimacy of the revelations that came before it. The Torah, the Psalms, and the Gospels 
while also at the same time offering a corrective. And that's the key here. Most Muslims recognize the uh, divine nature of the previous revelations in the Torah and the Gospels, but argue that something went awry and that the Quran is therefore a corrective of it. This coalition that I'm kind of hinting at here is really attested to in the Charter of Medina, one of the earliest constitutions in world history, and I talked a little bit about this in our last episode. The Charter detailed the relationship between the emigrating Muslims of Mecca with the tribes of Medina who would later be called the Ansar, or the Helpers. The Charter included mutual defense and alliance with the Jewish tribes of Medina. Yes, this would be the same Jewish tribes that Tuba Abu Qariba Assad, the king of Himyar, encountered. Whew, that name was a bit of a mouthful. So let's take a moment. Let's all say this together. Tuba Abu Qariba Assad. Tuba Abu Qariba Assad. Now that you all are chanting like it's a cult, we can move on. Anyways, the charter states that the Jews of Bani Auf will be treated as one community with the believers, end quote. In other words, Muhammad forges a sort of super tribe, which he calls the Ummah, where religious freedom is protected under law, and the previous feuding faiths are united under Muhammad's leaderships. Whether you're Jewish or Christian or you're a Hanif or you're part of this new faith of Islam, you could be part of Muhammad's Ummah. This is a big freaking deal. We're going to revisit this as Islam starts to develop over the years to come, and we're going to see how this unfortunately fractures away as Islam starts to distinguish itself more and more. So having forged a community of believers and reforming Arabian society, Muhammad died with his vision fulfilled. But his death brings the first true crisis for the community, because he died without a successor. Muhammad's death would raise the question of who would lead the nascent community. What was the relationship of the community with God's revelation? The prophet was dead. Would there be no more revelations from God? Who would partake in this new community? Were Christians and Jews still welcomed? The community grieved fiercely at the death of Muhammad. And there's a story of the famed warrior Omar, who we're also going to visit in future episodes, who was so shaken by the death of Muhammad that he rose up to give a sermon, threatening that if anyone dared to say the words, Muhammad was dead, out loud he would kill such a person. In that moment of crisis and shock stepped in the gentle Abu Bakr. He was an older man who was one of the first followers of Muhammad and from a prominent Meccan family. And Abu Bakr urged calm by reinforcing the strict monotheism of Islam rooted in social cohesion. He said, If any worship Muhammad, then know that he is dead. But if any worship God, then know that he lives and he cannot die. And here we see the contrast of the different strength between Abu Bakr and Omar. Omar is a great warrior, but his strength is physical, not emotional. Abu Bakr is an old and gentle man, but he has strong faith. Now, the cool hails prevailed in this situation, but that still left the question of who was going to take up the mantle of leadership. On the one hand, you had the Ansar, that is, the people of Medina, who had fought fiercely against the Meccan Quraysh, and who, you know, later the Meccans joined Muhammad, but that tension between the Ansar and the Quraysh still was there, the Ansar favored Ali to be their new leader. 
No, not me. I'm flattered that you think so. But Ali was the cousin of Muhammad and his closest confidant. At Muhammad's death, the Ansar gathered to decide what to do when Abu Bakr and Omar joined the group. He gathered the support of many of the original followers of Muhammad, and so Omar proclaimed him caliph or successor. Having secured the loyalty of most of the community, Abu Bakr was elected to this newfound position. Some, however, held out with Ali, and it took another six months before Ali and his followers gave in and gave an oath of loyalty to Abu Bakr. Now here's the important part. The division between those who followed Abu Bakr versus those who believed Ali was the rightful successor is the early division between what later becomes Sunni and Shia. In its origins, this is a difference between who was supposed to lead and a difference on the notion of authority. It only takes on a theological dimension many, many years later. It's more accurate to see these groups as political factions of the same process rather than different religious sects. This is going to develop uh, years to come. This shit is more complicated than you actually know, because our sources are actually filtered through either Sunni or Shia lenses, and so it's hard to really get to the core of what happened. This his part of history is super, super murky, and Muhammad was unclear in regards to what it is he really wanted, and so there's all sorts of competing traditions about what he supposedly said. We're going to talk more about these Sunni and Shia divisions in a later episode, but for now, know that there was tensions there and that those tensions are going to raise up again. Abu Bakr was only caliph for two years until he died in 634 CE. His main accomplishments were the preservation of the Quran and the preservation of the unity of his community. Significantly, he also established the essence of what it meant to be the caliph and what was the relationship of the caliph to the community. He is reputed to have said, I have been given authority over you, and I am not the best of you. If I do well, help me, and if I do wrong, set me straight. Sincere regard for truth is loyalty, and disregard for truth is treachery. The weak amongst you shall be strong with me until I have secured his rights, if God wills. And the strong amongst you shall be weak with me until I have wrested from him the rights of others, if God wills. Obey me so long as I obey God and his messenger. But if I disobey God and his messenger, you owe me no obedience. Arise for your prayer. God have mercy upon you. In other words, the caliph is actually not a ruler. He's not a pope-like figure, but rather he's a steward, very much like the steward of Gondor. Damn it, that's two nerd references in one episode. I'll see myself out. Abu Bakr's biggest challenge was the Ridda Wars, or the Wars of Apostasy. Some of the tribes who were part of the Ummah broke away at the death of Muhammad. Without the charismatic leadership of Muhammad, the tribes on the outskirts of this new community wanted to forge their own way. They did this in a unique fashion, through prophecy. With Muhammad gone, the question of the community's relationship to revelation was in question. Abu Bakr had preserved the Quran, and Muslims argue that it was through internalization, reflection, and interpretation of the Quran that man could retain his connection to the words of the divine. But for the rebel tribes, new prophecy was the way forward. That's right, 
new prophets emerged. Saja, Tulaiha, and Musailima all claimed to be prophets. They were actually chiefs of their respective tribes and thought that with Muhammad gone, they could take over the mantle of prophethood. By all accounts, they were really opportunists who had no real spiritual inclination, but they were politically savvy. Alright, let's take a break for a rapid-fire round. So, the Sunni and Shia have been fighting from the very beginning. Why is your voice so sexy? Is this why Daesh is talking about when they say the Islamic State? Alright, so, the Sunni and the Shia, have they been fighting from the very beginning? That's actually not correct. Well, it's true that there was divisions between the Sunni and Shia in regards to who would lead, and it does eventually lead to a civil war, and a couple of them. Most of Islamic history, Sunnis and Shia actually interact, intermingle, and live side by side with one another. It's also inaccurate to see this as a Sunni versus Shia thing, because neither Sunni nor Shia, as we come to know them today, existed in the 7th century. This division between those who follow Ali, known as the Shiatul Ali, versus those who follow Abu Bakr, really is just a political difference. They're not actual religious sects. So just bear that in mind. Why is my voice so sexy? I'd like to credit good genes and a decent microphone. Um, is this what Daesh is talking about when they talk about the Islamic State? Sort of. By Abu Bakr's time, we start to see the beginnings of what we could see um, or at least what we can call some form of governing body. Muhammad, during Muhammad's time, not so much. Muhammad ruled a community as a tribal leader, but it wasn't really a state, even though it had a charter or a constitution. Daesh is really reimagining the past and trying to reclaim um, some imagined idea of the past that they want to return to. So it's a little bit different and why this story and this history is so important because it offers an opportunity to push back on the narrative of the so-called Islamic State of Iraq and Syria. All right, let's get back to our story. So, Musailima was one of the first to claim prophethood. He claimed that he shared the power of Muhammad and he was supposedly a skilled magician. He performed miracles out in public. The biographer Ibn Kathir writes that Musailima could pluck the feathers off of a bird, crippling it then. But then, with his magic, he could heal the bird so that it could once more fly. Interestingly, Musailima was actually a leader in the Banu Hanifa tribe who were Christian. Now remember the last time when we talked about Bahira the monk and his prophecy that the Christians or the Jews, depending on which version uh, you're reading, would betray Muhammad? We see the ghost of that prophecy here, again revealing how later Muslim biographers may have used prophecy as a sort of literary device to explain the experience of betrayal as part of the experience of prophecy. Like Musailima, Tuleha claimed to be a prophet, and he gathered his own tribes to him. Saja was also a Christian, but from the Banu Tamim tribe. She was the only female to claim to be a prophetess, but joined the other two in breaking away from the Ummah that was now being led by Abu Bakr. Where Musailima was a magician of sorts, Saja was a soothsayer in the very clear pre-Islamic tradition that we talked about in our very first episode. These three prophets declared their independence by refusing to pay the honorary tribute that was supposed to go to the central financial uh, collection. But wait, wait a second, Ali, that sounds just like what Abraha did in Aksum. Well, you are absolutely right, little Timmy. To quote Mark Twain, history doesn't 
usually repeat itself, but it sure as heck does rhyme. And so we see once again the themes of the Red Sea War playing themselves out again by refusing to give tribute in the same way that Abraha did with Aksum, these new prophets were breaking away from the community. With the unity of the Ummah at stake, Ali's followers and Abu Bakr's followers band together. Divisions are set aside and the troops are rallied. Saja, one of the rebel prophets, marches against Medina, while command of the Muslim forces was given to Ali and Khalid ibn al-Walid. The Ummah would not let this threat stand. Tulayh's forces met Ali's troops in the first battle of Zuhakisa. The fighting was fierce and even matched, but the Muslims surprised Tuleha with last-minute reinforcements. Tuleha fled but was then defeated by the other half of the Muslim troops led by Khalid ibn al-Walid at the Battle of Buzakha. Khalid had only 6,000 troops, while Tuleha still had 15,000. The two of them, Walid and uh, Tuleha, met in a duel first. Khalid was a fierce warrior and he defeated Tulaha easily and the renegade prophet ran for the safety of his troops. The two armies slugged it out under the desert heat in a bloody conflict, but in the end, Khalid prevailed. Tulaha survived, renounced his claims, and swore allegiance to the new caliph. Khalid's battle prowess earned him the title of Saif Allah or Sword of God. After he defeated Tulaiha, Khalid marched against the other renegade prophets, defeating and killing Musalima and forcing Saja to submit at the Battle of Yamama. That's right, it sounds exactly like Yomama, so it's a good way to remember that. The battle became legendary and it cemented Khalid's status as a mighty warrior. Abu Bakr had succeeded in consolidating the community, but he died only two years later in 634 CE. Upon his death, Abu Bakr appointed Umar as the next caliph in order to avoid conflict. Now, Umar was an interesting cat. He started off his life as actually a fierce opponent of Islam. He was such an enemy that during the early stages of Muhammad's career, he would harass and persecute the Muslims. One night, when he came home, he found his sister and her husband huddled around a scrap of paper reciting a verse from the Quran. In a fit of rage, he struck them and grabbed his sword, vowing to kill Muhammad. He set out for Muhammad's house, but as he went, the words of the Quran that he had heard from his sister reverberated in his heart. When he arrived at Muhammad's house, the followers of the Prophet rose to protect him, but Muhammad asked they let him through. He charged through only to cast his sword at Muhammad's feet and profess his faith in Islam. He became Islam's fiercest defender after that. Now, this is a, the story according to his biographers. Again, we don't know why he converted to Islam. But like Abu Bakr, he was one of the few prominent Muslims, that, or one of the few prominent Meccans, I should say, that did convert to Islam relatively early on. Umar was the caliph that spread Islam through the ancient Near East. Now, it's easy to just assume that Islam became this massive imperial force that burst onto the scene because they wanted to spread God's message through the sword and that there was these massive religious conflicts. But as you know, we historians, we like to make things more complicated. So, 
Let's contextualize this together. You all remember the Red Sea Wars. Well, once more, they play a major role here. Just like in the Red Sea Wars, the great empires of the day, the Byzantine and the Sasanian Empire, used their client states to protect their territorial interests. Here was Islam growing in Arabia, and both the Byzantines and the Sasanians couldn't abide by that. The Ghaznavids, or the Ghassanids, were Federalis of the Byzantines. A Federalis is basically a military state that's outside of Rome's direct jurisdiction, but it's still aligned with them. It's also actually where we get the word federal from. The Ghazanids had killed an emissary of the Muslims, quite deliberately so, in order to agitate them. And when the Muslims retaliated, the Ghazanids brutally defeated them. This betrayal of the Ghazanids fits once more the prophecy that we heard in Bahira. Let's take a moment to really kind of take a closer look. Bahira was the monk that uh, Muhammad encountered in Syria. And he told Muhammad that in some time in the future, either the Jews or the Christians were going to betray him. Now, why is this significant? Well, in the Quran, Muhammad has a verse. There's a verse in Surah Rome that begins, Alif Lam Mim. The Romans were vanquished in the close region, and after being vanquished, they will prevail. Now, this is in reference to 615 CE, in which the Sasanian Persians defeated the Roman Empire, the Byzantine Empire, in Jerusalem. Muhammad, in the Quran, was aligning himself along the Christian and Jewish tradition. He was seeing himself as a successor, so he wanted to align himself with the Byzantine Empire. The betrayal of the Ghassanids, then, is a big betrayal for Muhammad. Here he was trying to put himself in the same prophetic tradition, while the Christians of the Ghassanids were rejecting him. This is why the prophecy of Rome is often interpreted by many historians as an attempt by Muhammad to contextualize the Byzantine-Sasanian wars. Understanding this and understanding the betrayal of the Ghazanids, we can then see that in 636, Omar strikes back. And why he strikes back? He needs to avenge the betrayal of the Ghazanids. Despite the Christian connections to the Byzantine Empire, many of the Arab Christians that were part of the Ghazanids sided with the Khalif's forces, feeling that the Muslims would actually be more fair to them than the Christian Byzantine Empire. At the Battle of Yarmouk, Umar's general Khalid ibn Al-Walid, who had gained fame in the Ridda Wars, defeated the armies of Byzantines Heraclius, even though Heraclius outnumbered the Arabs. Local Christians aligned with the nascent Islamic Empire, and Omar went on to conquer Roman Palestine, Syria, Jordan, and drove deep into North Africa. After conquering Jerusalem, Omar ordered the building of the Aqsa Mosque on the Temple Mount, which would take several years to complete. That Aqsa Mosque remains to this day. Omar also expanded into the Sasanian territories. After the Sassanid Emperor Yazdegerd III tried to strike at the Muslims through their client state, the Muslims struck back. At the Battle of Qatiziya in 636, the Muslims decisively defeated the Sassanids once and for all, taking Iraq and driving all the way into modern-day Afghanistan. Suddenly you had this massive empire. 
contrary to kind of modern day interpretations of Islam spread by the sword, the reality was most of these conquests happen inadvertently as responses to agitations from the Byzantine and the Sasanian empires. These two great imperial forces who had been at war with one another suddenly saw the third way of Islam breaking with the old order and instituting a new policy of unity, bringing the tribes together and rejecting the conflict that drove the ancient Mediterranean apart. The success of the Muslim expansions rests with the fact that the Byzantines and Sasanians had spent so many years fighting one another that they were utterly exhausted. The Muslims, having defeated the divisions within, were able to unite under a single banner. More importantly, the local people, who were ruled by either the Byzantines or the Sasanians, often ended up siding with the Muslims against their own co-religionists because they thought they'd fare better with them. So this was a really, at the end of the day, despite the betrayal of the Ghazanids and the prophecies and the attempts to explain away the betrayal using prophecy as a literary tradition, at the end of the day, it wasn't Christians versus Muslims or Muslims versus Jews, but rather a third alliance a new alliance of forces going against two imperial uh, two imperial states, the Byzantines and the Sasanians. And contrary to kind of myths of forced conversion, most of the Muslims uh, remained a minority within these territories. Muslims didn't force convert anyone. Christians continued to practice Christianity. Jews continued to practice Judaism. Zoroastrians continued to practice Zoroastrianism. And Muslims were really a minority faith in a much larger territory. Omar's rule was simple but strict. He appointed governors, or what were known as walis, to oversee these new territories. And he said to them, Remember, I have not appointed you as commanders over the people, nor as tyrants. I have sent you as leaders instead, so that the people may follow your example. Give the Muslims their rights and do not beat them, lest they become abused. Do not praise them unduly, lest they fall into error of conceit. Do not keep your doors shut in their faces, lest the most powerful of them eat up the weaker ones, and do not behave as if you were superior to them, for that is tyranny over them. So even though there was this conflict or this conquest, Omar still saw his reign as the simple, pious uh, government that Muhammad had established, a continuation of that simple tradition. He also incorporated a formal internal structure to the burgeoning Islamic empire. He appointed ministers to oversee things like the flow of money, the distribution of law, the passing out of funds amongst the military, and he was keenly focused on the poor. And like Muhammad and Abu Bakr before him, he dispensed all the tribute and taxes that he collected back to the people, keeping none of it for himself, nor for this new state that was emerging. He lived a very simple life. He ruled for 10 years, having expanded Islam into the territories of the Byzantines and the Sasanians, and having established a formalized internal structure. In 644, he was assassinated by a Persian slave. 
All right, we've talked enough for today, so we're going to stop here and pick up next week with the Muslim civil wars and the establishment of the Umayyad Caliphate. So make sure that you're subscribed, make sure that you're following on, following along on social media, because we're going to get down to even more conflicts and interesting history in the coming weeks. So as usual, let's talk about book recommendations. Firstly, I want to give a shout out to an edited volume called Our Shared Stories, an Afghan Diary, edited by Emal Dost and Jahan Sharyar. It has nothing to do with what we're actually talking about, but it's a really awesome collection of stories by young Afghans living in the diaspora and their struggle with being immigrants or the children of immigrants. And all the cool thing about it is that all the proceeds go to funding women's education in Afghanistan. So definitely go check that out. You can find it on Amazon. Now, if you're interested in this particular moment or the, the early uh, caliphate that comes after Muhammad, I have a few recommendations. First, Hugh Kennedy's work, the, his book, The Prophet and the Age of the Caliphate, is kind of the go-to text on this. Hugh Kennedy is a British medievalist who's a specialist in early Islam and the Crusades. And this book is a textbook that a lot of us historians use when we're teaching his class. He also just came out with a kind of new version uh, called The Caliphate, A History of an Idea. Super, super book. Patricia Crone's God's Caliph, Religious Authority in the First Centuries of Islam, is my third recommendation. Patricia Crone is someone that I've mentioned before. She's one of the early Islamic uh, revisionist historians who does amazing work by looking at multiple sources from outside of Islam. So these are the three books that I would recommend. They're all great text for you if you're interested in learning more about this particular history. We're going to touch a little bit more on this next week when we talk about what happened happens after Umar, finishing up the last four Khalifs, and then talking about the rise of the Umayyads. Anyways, thank you for tuning in, beautiful nerds.